0: This is episode 73 of the Higher Christian Life broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. When we repent, just like when we sin, we find it's an experience. One experience leads us away from God, which is sin, and the other, repentance, which is also an experience, should lead us closer to God in reconciliation and renewed joy, or at least that's how it's supposed to function. But to be able to experience God in repentance means we are repenting in a way that honors God and ask Him to do in our life what only He can do. And this is the example we see in David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, especially verses 10 through 12. In this prayer, David, in his sorrow and repentance, asked God to do six things for him that David was incapable of doing for himself. One, he asked God to please create in me a clean heart, O God, and two, renew, you renew a steadfast spirit within me. Three, do not cast me away from your presence. And four, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Five, you, God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And finally, six, God, you uphold me by your generous spirit. These are things that only God can do, and when God answers our prayer of repentance, we will have a renewed experience with Him. Sound intriguing? I thought it might. So join us today as we learn how to experience God through true repentance from Psalm 51 as we learn to embrace the higher Christian life. Let's jump right in, shall we? Now listen, before I begin, I want you to know that there are um, there's life-changing verses that each of us have individually. It's like I was really struggling and all of a sudden this verse came out, it gave me comfort during the death of a loved one or... I uh, didn't really know what I was supposed to do, and God spoke to me through this verse. And so every time I go through the Bible and I see that verse, it triggers memories of how good and gracious God was, and maybe he lets me praise and worship Him even more. And, and then, and again, I'm, I'm being subjective here, then there are some verses that are life-changing for everyone, not just for me individually, although the ones I'm going to share with you are but they're life-changing for everyone because in them, we clearly have laid out in Scripture what we need to do to please Him. One question that we always have is, you know, what is God's will for my life? What does He want me to do? I mean, who does He want me to marry? What does He want me to do vocationally? Where does He want me to move? How does He want me to raise my kids? How many kids does He want me to have? God, I've got all these questions I'd love to to have you answer, but where do I go to find those answers specifically of what your will is for my life? And the life-changing verse, and we've gone over this many times, that answers that question is Romans 12, 1 and 2. Really simple. He says, I beseech you, I beg you, I urge you, brethren. He's talking to Christians. He's not talking to uh, the lost people. Uh, I'm begging you this on the, on the basis of God's mercy, not his judgment, not his fear, not, his, not even his altruistic spirit, but his mercy. I, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that this is something you need to do. You present your bodies to him as a living sacrifice. In other words, you offer yourself to him not as something dead that's consumed by fire and then the smell pleases the nostril of God using an Old Testament imagery here. But you say, I no longer belong to myself. I'm gonna lay myself down totally given to you. But I can't because I've really messed my life up, because I've got a whole bunch of sin in my life. There's things that I'm, I'm still struggling with. There's nothing in me God can use, and those are the defenses we basically kicked up, kick up. But then when we do that, God sees us as holy, and whatever we offer him, he will accept it, which is what we need to do, it's reasonable for us to do, based on the mercies of God. God saved us and redeemed us so our life is no longer our own, so we give back to him what he has given to us, and then all of a sudden, transformation takes place. And you do not be conformed to this world, some translations say, to the image of this world. Okay, so if I'm not trans, if I'm not conformed to this world, if I don't act like this world, what do I need to do? Well, then you become transformed by thinking differently, by the renewing of your mind. The things that you once thought were important are no longer important. Bigger things are more important, and if you do that, the promise is that you may be able to prove, to know for certain what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Not just for everyone, but specifically for you. I don't know what God's will is for my life. Here it is. You do this, He changes you. He transforms you. He takes your will, what you want to do, and sets it aside. He now puts his will at the forefront, and you're able to prove, to know for certain what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This verse will change your life if you hold on to it and internalize it and believe what it says. Okay, so now I know what God's will is for my life, but how do I do it? well, what am I supposed to do? I mean, he wasn't real specific about the, you know, the details. He gave me this general idea of what he wants me to do with my life. Can you tell me if there's a life-changing verse in here that specifically tells me what I need to do to fulfill the first promise? Again, a classic verse. These are verses that are life-changing for everyone. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It simply says this, trust in the Lord. How much? To what extent? With all, everything you've got on the inside, with all your heart, with all your heart, your mind, your will, and volition, if this was written in the New Testament, with your soul, with everything about you, trust in the Lord with all your heart. How? How? How do I do that? There's just battle going on in my head between what God wants me to do and what I want to do. I mean, how do I work that out? Really simple. Lean not on your own understanding, on your fa- uh, failed, fallible view of things. And in all your ways, in everything that you do, you acknowledge him. And then in the Septuagint, this is gnosko, that you you experience, or you know him on an experiential level, you love him and adore him. And if you do that, he will direct your paths. This is more specific than understanding the will of God. This is showing exactly how to fulfill the will of God. Or if you want to put it this way, that um, I always like to look at these as conditions and promises. We have three conditions and one promise. Condition one, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Condition two, lean not on your own understanding. That's stuff you do, not God. Number three, in all your ways acknowledge Him. That's stuff that you do, and what He does is He shall direct your paths. All right, Lord, if I do that, then what about all my responsibilities here? I, 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 what about my job? What about the money I want to make? What about the, the car that I need to buy? What, what about my house? And the rent payments now are $2,000 a month for a um, you know one-bedroom apartment in a not-so-nice kind of a, a apartment complex. And what about that? What about the devaluation of the dollar? What about my responsibility as a man taking care of my family? I mean, what do you want me to do, God? you want me to add more to what I'm doing right now? Do you, gosh, you don't want me to quit my job, do you? I mean, what am I supposed to do? Because I have all these worries about this life that has got me so consumed that I'm not able to even serve you. And we move to, I'm only doing three of these. Another life-changing passage. This whole chapter is, it talks about why do you worry about anything? what you eat or what you drink. And and then God shows the futility in that, showing how he takes care of the birds of the air and the animals on the ground and the lilies of the field. And if he does all that for them, why do you think he would leave you hanging? And he sums it up this way. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? God, I have all these problems and somehow you're failing me. For after all these things that Gentiles seek, and you're supposed to be seeking me, for your heavenly Father knows that, that you need all these things. Okay, I, I got that. I finally understand that. My mind has been renewed to the fact that I believe God trusts, or uh, that I can trust God that much. What do I do? You seek first Him and His kingdom and His righteousness, He becomes number one in your life. And if you do that, the promise is that all the things you're worried about will be added to you, will be given to you in addition to his presence and his intimacy and understanding his will. Or if you want to go back to the condition and the promise, here's the condition. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he will take care of every one of your needs. Now, here's what I have discovered. I've discovered that when I encounter God, I trust these promises. When I don't encounter God, then my own mind begins to speak louder than what I remember God said to me last time I encountered him, that his truth and his scripture somehow gets dim when I'm faced with the reality of life, unless I've had this fresh experience and this fresh encounter with God. Now watch this. I just randomly picked some people in the Old and New Testament. I took some of the patriarchs. and took some of the people that were involved in Jesus' life. And then we threw the Peter and Paul in there as these key apostles. And I'm trying to determine when I'm looking at these names, and you can add your names to it here, also, what made these people different? What made Moses more than just, uh, you know, a man who never fulfilled his destiny, according to the Egyptians. He was there and he lost his cool and he killed an Egyptian, buried him in the sand. The Jews turned against him. So he ran away for 40 years on the backside of the moon, just shepherding animals, just living his life out. And nothing's going to change because I've had my opportunity and I blew it. And God never gives second chances. Until all of a sudden, he saw this bush that wasn't consumed. And he walked into this cave, and he saw this thing that drew him to God, and God encountered him. God spoke to him. God changed him. Told him where he was standing was on holy ground and gave him instructions. And the last 40 years of Moses' life were incredible because god he encountered God. No encounter. Moses would have died just some lonely old man on the dark side of the moon. We'd never even hear about him. Jacob wrestled with God, spent the rest of his life limping because of that. Abraham, Elijah is in the, you know, I, I need to hear you, God. I mean, I've just had this confrontation with Baal and Asherad and these 450 prophets, and and you, know, you proved yourself incredible on Mount Carmel, and now Jezebel wants to kill me, and I'm so afraid I'm going go to go to prison or jail or something. So I'm standing at the mouth of the cave, and you come by in this gentle whisper. The still small voice. And then all of a sudden, God said to, uh, to Elijah, get up. I've got a job for you to do. Go out and anoint Elisha. Isaiah was just there in the spirit, and he heard a conversation going on in the Godhead. I mean, they weren't talking to him. They were talking among themselves. Who will go for us? And who shall we send, said God the Father to the Son and maybe the Spirit. And Elijah in the Spirit on the Lord's day hears that, like John on Patmos, here I am, I'll go, send me. And everything changed in his life. woman with the issue of blood fights her way through a crowd in spite of her shame and the rejection she'll know that she'll get if she's found out in order to touch the hem of Christ's robe. And everything changed. Mary Magdalene came and anointed him's feet with her tears. Got Peter and Paul and all that was involved in them, how their life changed. Paul's life changed on the Damascus Road when he met Christ. Your life will change when you have an encounter with Christ. He wants to have an encounter with you. And the only thing that keeps that from happening is us. I don't care enough i'm too busy with other life uh, situations or i'm not worthy enough my sin is too great my 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 day is past like moses i i should have listened to god way back when but i married the wrong person and you know i aborted this baby i i you know stole from this over here I, whatever your sin is it's almost like God can't forgive that sin, or even if He does, we don't want Him to, because we still beat ourselves up with our failures and uh, and somehow hold that against us. Doesn't work that way. Weeks ago, I shared with you about the key to spiritual renewal. The key to having an encounter with God is found in Revelation chapter two, verse four and five, to the church at Ephesus. This church that. Had firsthand knowledge of Christ, where he says about all the good things they've done, and then says, I have one thing against you. And what I have against you is that you have left your first love. That yes, you're diligent, you're working hard, you're going to church, you're studying your Bible, you're doing your devotions, you're even witnessing to people now and then. You go to, you know, uh, you listen to Christian music, you go to Christian movies, you're trying to live a sanctified life. All that is great that's great. That's what the church at Ephesus was doing. Yet they lost their intimacy with him. They loved serving him. They loved going to church. They loved their brand of righteousness. Yet they didn't love him anymore. What you have done is you have forsaken, abandoned, walked away from, left your first love, which is me my Lord, I'm, I'm convicted. I, I know I've done that. How do I return? How do I have that encounter with you? It's really simple. Remember, first keyword. therefore where you have fallen. Recognize where you at one time were and now are, and then you need to do something about it. You need to repent for whatever it was, your pride or arrogance or, or whatever, what it was that made you where you are right now, and then I want you to return or do the things you did at first. But the key part of this is not remember or return. The key part is repent because he uses that word twice. If you don't do that, then here are the consequences. And so, therefore, these are the consequences you will suffer unless you not remember and not return, but unless you repent. We've spent a lot of time. I've written a, a several articles about what true repentance really means. It's not just feeling sorry. It's not repenting of the consequences. It's not saying, my bad, you know, or something of that nature. What does it mean? What does it mean to crush the heart of God? What does it mean to crush the heart of your loved ones? What does it mean to have something between you and God that you can remove with a prayer and yet refuse to do it? What does repentance really mean? Look like? And how do we repent in a way that allows us to encounter God? And what does that prayer of repentance really look like? And for the last several weeks, we've been looking at Psalm 51. Uh, Three weeks ago, I went through Psalm 51, even sent something out and uh, gave you 10 truths that you can pull out of Psalm 51. And then we started focusing on the crux of this, which is, again, these life changing verses. That psalm 51, verses 10 through 12, which is right in the middle of the psalm where David shows us exactly what it means to repent. It says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take the Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. These key phrases lay out for us the keys that unlock the door that will allow you to repent in a way that God will not only forgive your sins, but most important, cleanse you from all unrighteousness, restore that relationship with you. And it all focuses on create, renew, and then of course the things we don't want God to do, do not cast, do not take, and then restore and uphold. And the joy in this, This is the best part, is none of this is anything you have to do. None of it. Matter of fact, you can't do any of it. Our prayers are simply this: God, I have something I need you to do, and something else I need you to do. And I have two things I don't want you to do, and then two more things I want you to do. Because if you look at this prayer, it's not us telling God, this is what we want to do, please accept our sacrifice. In other words, their prayers begging God to do something only He can do. You, God, create in me a clean heart. I can't do that. I need you to do that. You, God, renew a steadfast, solid, stable spirit within me. You have to do that, God. I'm helpless to do that. You, God, please don't cast me away from your presence. Don't shut the door to intimacy with you because of my sin. You, God, please don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. This is not a salvation verse. It's an intimacy verse. You, God, have to restore unto me something I've lost because of my sin, the joy of not my salvation, but my salvation found in you. And God, after all that's done, I'm going to stumble again, so you have to uphold me by your generous, magnanimous Spirit. These are things that you have to do, God, because you're the only one who can. So what does it mean? I mean, how is this done? What does this prayer of repentance look like? I mean, if I, if I gave you a sheet of paper and I asked you to, lay down, to write down, I don't know, the top five things that you feel are separating you from a deeper relationship with God, every one of those things would be something you needed to repent of. Well, uh, my prayer life's really bad then repent of that. Oh, I'm not studying the Bible like I should. Oh, I'm really angry at this person over here. Oh, I'm too consumed at work. Oh, I don't really have time for prayer anymore. You know, I don't feel God's presence. don't feel like he's done anything for me. So I'm making it on my own. Oh, I worry all the time. Whatever it is, there would be things you needed to repent of. And you've tried it before where you repent like, I'm sorry, God, please forgive me of all my sins. If there's anything standing between me and a deeper relationship with you, take that away. Are we good and you're not you're not because you may feel a momentarily ah oh, my sins have been forgiven and they have but the intimacy not the intimacy's not restored the the joy of following him and loving him and being used by him is something that's a distant memory at best and all that is what changes us into the kind of people that he can use in a time in which he really needs those people on his side right now. I'm going to go through the first two quickly since I've already written about them, and I hope you've read them. If not, you can go home and and read them. And so what we do is we go through and we just look at what some of these words mean, because I want to know exactly what it means to create and what clean really means. And so, again, I've shared this with you before. I'm just going to read it pretty quickly. You, God, create. The word bara there means to create out of nothing. In other words, it's not make me better or make me new. It's give me something I don't have. As a matter of fact, it means give me something that I don't even have the essence of having. It's almost like a It's like what happened when salvation took place where your old man is set aside and the Holy Spirit comes to live within you and gives you a new heart. He doesn't take your old one away. He gives you a new heart, hence this battle that goes on. And so it's not like he makes you better. He makes you new. Create in me, personal, a clean heart. Clean means pure, genuine, free from moral impurity. I don't even think that way anymore. And the heart, of course, is that immaterial part of man. It's, it's what's inside of me. And then he says, I need you to do this, O God, in the Hebrew, Elohim. Oh, that's interesting. It's not Jehovah. It's not Yahweh. It's Elohim. Well, what is Elohim? Elohim is the plural word for God. It's the It's when God says, our or us, that's Elohim. It involves all aspects of the Trinity, and it means in Scripture the one true God, but the God who is the creator and sustainer and sovereign over everything. Those are the same two words that are used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created out of nothing the heavens and the earth. And who created that? Elohim, the plural God, the sovereign God, the sustaining God. God, what you did in creation, I need you to do in me right now. All you have to do is pray that prayer with an open heart, and that's exactly what God will do. I've already written about this, so I'll not elaborate it on any longer. I've also written about this. It's more God than you just creating in me, because even if you create it in me, I'm going to mess up. I'm going to still go my own way. I have a choice between choosing forgiveness or bitterness. That's hard. This feels good. This I'm justified in, but this I'm not. So you know what? I'm, I, I know this is what I should do, and you've created a good heart for me, to but I'm not. I'm going to go back to here. And so, God, I know I'm going to mess up. I know I don't have what it takes inside of me to stick true to you. So not only do I want you to create in me something only you can do, but I want you to renew in me. Give me what I once had that I no longer have, a steadfast spirit. Renew means to restore, to reestablish on a new or improved basis to revitalize or make new or like new. God is creating something out of nothing that you've never had, but David is asking him to take this spirit of mine that once panted after you, that once loved you more than anything, to use the metric I promised I wouldn't use much anymore, when I was a 10, when I was closer to you than I'd ever been before, renew that in me. Make me like I at least was. Let me remember from the heights I've fallen and let me return and do what I did in the beginning and then move me on into uncharted spiritual territory. Renew a steadfast, gosh, I love this word, firm determination, resolution. I am unshakable. I will stand upright. I will not be moved. God is my God. I will serve him for what he's done to me. I need you to somehow renew that commitment to you, that boldness to you, that you've given me this new heart. Now, God, help me live by it. Help me stand firm for you on this because I can't do it on my own because I'm too fickle and the world is just pulling at me so many different ways. And so, God, I need you to not only give me something, but then help me stay committed to you, come what may. And I want you to renew that spirit deep down inside of me. Your word I've hidden in my heart, so I'll not sin against you. But even though that word is hidden in my heart, and I know what's right and wrong, unless I have a renewed spirit to choose the right thing to do, I'll fall prey every single time. To recapture and restore unshakable determination in the spirit is what he's praying for. That somehow has slipped away over time. Most of us, when we find our relationship with the Lord uh, waning, if we went back and started thinking about it, it's usually not one particular event. It's not like, you know, I... You know, and Me and God were just so close, and it's absolutely incredible. And then I met this woman, and oh, threw everything away. It's, it's, it's usually, you can't really go back and find this one defining thing. Usually, it's like a slow bleed or a slow fade. But all of a sudden, I got my eyes off the Lord, and I wasn't interested in what He was doing anymore. And pretty soon, as time went on, I found the trajectory between He and I were, were just extended greatly. I mean, if you know anything about geometry... If you've got a straight line and then you just move that line one degree, just one degree, hardly even notice that you're not lined up anymore and you just bring it all on out into time, that pretty soon that one degree becomes large as you just move on out. And it's pretty much what happens. And so, Lord, I, I don't want that to happen anymore. You've given me a new heart. and give me the, the fortitude to be able to do what is right you created me a clean heart. You renewed a steadfast spirit within me. And Lord, I know how bad my sin is. I know the consequences of my sin. And I'm asking you, God, I'm begging you, God, please, please don't let me experience the consequences of my sin, which is grieving your spirit, which is having your presence withdrawn from me. So I'm, I'm like Samson. Now, my hair is cut, and the Philistines are out there, and I grab my sword and I run out there. And it's a terrible phrase, it says in there. And he did not know that the spirit had left him. He went out there thinking he was the same man he was before, but he wasn't. And you know how that story ended up. What are you asking here? Here's what David is saying saying, You, God, please do not cast me away. This word cast has like, it's like throwing trash out of your car. It's like getting rid of just nasty stuff in your life. It means to throw or fling or to toss away casually or to dispose of. It's not like you're, I just love this. and It's just a precious thing, but I know it's bad for me. So I'm going to put it in a box and make sure wrap it with bubble wrap and go set it on a shelf somewhere that I can pull it out of some other to No. It's like the word cast is almost like this is worthless. I don't even care about it anymore. And so David feels like his sin is so great that that's how God views him that he's just going to throw him away as worth nothing. He's going to just dispose of him to toss him away casually as if he meant nothing. We know that's not true, but that's how broken David was because of his sin. Lord, please. Do not cast me personally away from your presence. It's an amazing word. It means your face has an idea of proximity. It it means looking at someone, being in front of someone. There was a time when I prayed and and you were there. There was a time when I I felt your acceptance and I felt your love and I felt your presence and and I knew I had confidence in your word and, and you were first and foremost in my life and then all of a sudden I got my eyes off you and I've committed this horrible sin and I don't believe you're ever gonna take me back. But of course God does. And David's biggest fear was not that I'll lose the kingship because they're going to find out that you know I had this affair with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. No, God, my biggest fear is that when you speak, I don't hear you anymore. And when I pray, my prayers just bounce off the ceiling, and I feel all alone in this world right now. I don't even feel your presence, God. Please don't cast me away from your eternal life. It's not what he says. Don't cast me away from your presence because I need that more than anything. David considered that his sin was so bad it was a deal breaker with God, which is not the case. But he understood the gravity of his sin and his desire to have God's presence in his his life all the days of his life. Do you, when you have an opportunity to forsaken, ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins? Do you anguish over the fact that your relationship with God may be strained? Or does it not even bother you anymore because you've lived like that for so long that it's just commonplace? Well, maybe this is all there is to the Christian life. And if there is, there's not much of an abundant life to me. So I don't know why I want to tell anybody else to feel this guilt that I feel. And all that can be taken away by him. These are prayers. God. These are prayers David prays to God. These are not things that David says he's going to do for God. God, if you'll forgive me, then I promise I'll always stand before you in your face. No, he can't. He can't. He knows that. That's why the Christian life is not about striving to do better. The Christian life is about abiding and resting in him. Creating me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and God, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Again, this is not a salvation verse. If you remember correctly, the Holy Spirit did not reside in Old Testament people like he does in us since Pentecost. And so David did not have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. The Holy Spirit came and left. We find this, David, even the Holy Spirit inhabits him, and he writes some psalms, he does some great things, and the Holy Spirit is gone. And and it's, it's not like it is with us. David still had to go to the temple. David still had to, you know, have his sins forgiven the Old Testament way. So this is not a salvation verse, it's an intimacy verse. Same prayer we should have. God, you please do not take to grab or seize or to take away. Almost means to snatch. This is how David thought God was going to respond to him. David's sitting at the table, and he's anguishing over uh, his, uh, his sin, and the Holy Spirit, like some tangible item, is sitting on the table, and God the Father's walking by, and David looks up at God the Father with these sad eyes going, I have sinned, and God the Father looks at him, and the Holy Spirit goes, give me death from you, and just snatches it away from him. You're not even worthy of having that anymore. That's not how God is at all but that's exactly how David felt about his sin. And so he's crying out saying, God, I don't want to lose your presence. And please, it's the Holy Spirit who sets me apart and sanctifies me. And I'm consecrated to you because of him. I was just a shepherd boy. just I had no future and you chose me. And, were there when I killed Goliath with five stones, really just one stone and killed Goliath and you sustained me all during the turmoil with, with Saul. And, and Lord, I violated it all, please. I want that life back. I want that intimacy with you back. I want to be happy again. Please, Lord, I beg you because of my sin. Don't, don't take your presence away from me. And don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Let, me. let me restore and renew my relationship with you. And I can't do it, God, but I know you can. As Obviously, if you read the life of David, you'll see that he experienced in the past what the Holy Spirit can do in his life. He experienced comfort and counsel and help and a quickening and God speaking to him. He, he understood the power of the Holy Spirit like you have. Those were the 10 times in your life. The closest you were ever to the Lord, whether it was today or six months ago or six years ago, I remember what it was like. I mean, I just felt the presence of God in my life, incredible, and I want that so bad. I know that, that in David's situation, he doesn't dwell with me permanently, but nevertheless, he can be grieved in David's life just like he can be grieved in ours. And so my biggest concern, Lord, is not losing the kingship or having all my friends turn against me or, or losing my house or going to prison for murder. I don't care about any of that. What I care about is losing my intimacy with you. God, please. I need you to create in me, and I've got nothing to offer. Create in me ex nihilo, create in me out of nothing, a clean, pure, righteous heart like it was when I first got saved. And then give me the strength, renew the strength in me, maybe that I had at the beginning, to live for you and you alone. And Lord, because of my sin, don't, don't cast me away from your presence, and please don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Lord, what I need more than anything is I need you to restore unto me the joy, the joy of your salvation. The word restore means that you once had it, and now it's gone. And so you're turning around to go back and recapture lost ground. It doesn't say, give me joy that I've never had before. It's like, and again, to use our metric, God, I'm tired of being a six. Give me the joy I had when I was a 10. And once I'm a 10, I'll be so dissatisfied with that that I want more and more and more. Restore, to turn, return, to turn back, to do again, to bring back into its original existence. Restore, God, personally, to me, the joy. Now, every one of us in here profess to be saved. Whether you are or not is something you really know. But we profess to be saved. And we profess to have eternal life. We profess to have the Holy Spirit living in us. We profess to have Jesus Christ considers us not only um, his his slaves and servants, but also his sons and even calls us friends, that we have the, the God himself living within us and supposed to be living this abundant life Jesus promised. And yet many of us can never say that we've ever, at least in a long time, experienced what the word joy means in our salvation. Joy means exaltation. Yes, yes. It means gladness, rejoicing, jubilation. It means an emotion of great happiness or pleasure. We've had joy when our favorite team wins a Super Bowl, We've had joy when we get the job that we've been looking for. We have joy when we, I don't know, win a lottery or something of that nature. We have joy and all this. We want to tell everybody about it, but not about Him, not about our salvation. And why is that? It's because our salvation is not joyful, or somehow we've lost it. And if we've lost it, like David, because of sin, then once we, we confess those sins and he creates in us a new heart and gives us the strength to stand firm, and we realize he's not going to take his Holy Spirit away from us, that all of a sudden we're saying, well, Lord, then I need to go back. I need you to restore unto me the exaltation and rejoicing of your salvation. I know I've shared this story with you before, but um, I was calling my insurance agent, I don't know, three four years ago, maybe five or six years ago. I don't know who she is. It was just the lady that answered the phone. You never get to the actual agent. And I, I don't know if I'd bought a car or selling a car. I don't remember what it was. And so I called her and I uh, was asking her to do something with my insurance. And she started talking about this uh, program she was on that helped her lose 60 pounds. Um, okay. Um, that's great. Um, I, I, I just, I'm in a hurry. I kind of need this insurance thing taken care of. Yeah, I mean, it's the greatest thing ever. I mean, I'm telling you, I've really struggled with this my entire life. And, and then I feel so much better right now. And I mean, it's really, inc- I was so captivated by what she said. We got in a conversation about whatever it was she was doing that uh, gave her such joy. She could not contain herself to tell a stranger about what put a smile on her face because, that, that was It was first and foremost in her mind. Yes, I'm doing my job, and yes, I'll help you with this, but there's something far more important than me putting insurance on your car. Let me tell you what's happened to me. If we ever meet Christians like that, we run from them. Oh, they're kind of weird. I mean, can't we just get along with business right now? Why don't we talk about Jesus all the time? And David is saying, restore unto me the exaltation of knowing that you've redeemed me and saved me. That I belong to you. And the word salvation means deliverance, rescue, the act of delivering someone from sin or saving them from evil. There's nothing anyone has ever done in my life greater than that. And yet I find myself taking joy in so many other things other than this. Why is that? At the church, when we come together and we have a time of sharing, you know, it's like. You know, when I, you know, you guilt somebody into sharing his last time, I know you're going to feel guilty, and somebody shares about something, and somebody stands up over here and goes, I just want to thank the Lord Jesus Christ for my salvation. Because, and a lot of us go, oh, just that? Yes, just that. That's incredible. It should transcend every avenue of our life. And this is what David is saying, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. And so my question to you is the same question God asked me. Steve, do you rejoice in exaltation over the salvation I provided to you, over my choice of you in him before the foundation of the world? Ah, oh, yeah, I, I do, really. If so, how? How? Same question I'll ask you. Repentance comes with this being restored to a newness with him should be more than, okay, Lord, thank you very much. I don't feel guilty anymore. It should be, wow, I've been washed clean from my sins, and you can have the same thing happen to you. Finally, the last one, and uphold me by your generous spirit. The word uphold means to sustain and support to bear up it literally means to give you everything you need again, God, I can't do this myself. This is something you need to do. You have to uphold me, you have to uh, um, create in me a clean heart. you have to restore unto me the joy of my salvation. So Lord, would you please uphold me it's personal again, and not by my merits, not by what I 've done, not by what I think I deserve, but by your. Generous spirit, and the word generous here means willing. I love that. So you will do that, Lord? Yes, I'll do in abundance. I'll do that. Uh, noble, uh, an attitude of heart that consents or agrees. Yes, you want me to uphold you? Absolutely, son. Why wouldn't I? Because I'm magnanimous and I'm disposed or inclined to answer that prayer. You pray it. I'll answer. I'll not only renew a steadfast spirit in you, but I will give you everything you need to live a life of spiritual abundance in me. If you remember that passage in Ephesians chapter 3, now to him, Tim, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, magnanimously with his generous spirit more than I can even ask or think. It takes more faith to ask than it does to think. And so even when it comes to thinking, God is greater than that, according to the spirit who lives in us and in his church. Read that passage yourself, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. So here's the prayer created me a clean heart, O oh God. That's something you need to do. Will you do that, Lord? I've asked forgiveness for my sins, and I know you've forgiven me my sins, but it's not over yet. This is that First John 1, 9, cleanse me from all unrighteousness part of that. The forgiveness part, Jesus paid the penalty for, but it's the fellowship part that I'm really concerned about. The Second half of First John 1, 9. Lord, so I need you to create in me a clean heart like I was in the very beginning when I first got saved, pure and innocent and trusting, just like a baby, just for you. And Lord, even if you create me that way, you have in the past, but uh, when I first got saved, but I lost it because I wasn't enamored enough with you. So I need you, Lord, to renew a steadfast spirit in me. Give me self-determination. Give me a willingness to follow your word no matter what. God, I don't ever want you to um, cast me away from your presence. I don't ever want to not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within me, ever, ever. But Lord, I do need you to restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And once I experience that joy that I should have had this whole time, and maybe I had in the beginning, then Lord, I'm asking you to sustain me, to give me everything that I need, and he promises he will, by your magnanimous Generous, bountiful spirit who lives in us. So that's the sermon. The question is what are you going to do about it? What does it mean to you? Let me pray.